The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 298 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from medical practice. Our topic today is schools and families with children with mental health problems. Mental health problems in children and teens may be, but are not always, the early signs of mental illnesses. Addiction problems in children and teens arise from the use or abuse of illegal substances, addictive pain relief medications, and of course, alcohol. Addiction problems in children and teens may or may not be a product of mental illnesses. Young people aged 15 to 24 are more likely than any other age groups, any other age groups, to experience mental health problems and addiction problems or just addiction problems. 70%, 70 of mental health problems start during childhood and adolescence and 20% of addiction problems start at age 15 or older, which is why our topic, schools and families with children with mental health problems, is so important. To discuss it, our guest, my guest, is Dr. Ben Levin. Ben, his background, Ben retired in 2014 as a professor in educational leadership and policy at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. He's originally from Manitoba and he's worked with private research organizations, school districts, provincial governments and national and international agencies, as well as building a strong academic career. He served as Deputy Minister for Education for the province of Ontario from 2004 to 2007 and again from 2008 to 2009. He held a similar position in Manitoba from 1999 to 2002. He's authored or co-authored eight books and more than 300 other articles on education. He's conducted many research studies and he's spoken and consulted on education issues around the world. His current interests are in large-scale change, ways to ameliorate the impact of poverty and inequity, and finding better ways to connect research to policy and practice in education. So welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Right. Now, first question for you. Please tell us more about your career and any experience you have or you may have with family caregiving. Ben? Well, my whole career has been in education, and it really started when I was a teenager in high school and found I didn't like high school very much. So I got involved in student politics as a high school student, and then that led me a few years later 
uh, when I was 19 to run for and get elected to a school board in Manitoba. At that time, I was the youngest person in Canada to be elected. And uh, since then, I spent my whole career working on public education, uh, about half of it in government and about half of it in academia, with a few short bits in there working for uh, other kinds of educational organizations. So I've had the chance to see it from the government side. I've had the chance to study it uh, and write about it. And uh, I've had the chance to put some fairly big uh, policy changes into practice, both in Manitoba and in Ontario. Now, how about your experience with family caregiving? Have you any? Uh, yes, uh, for sure. Um, at the moment, well, um, uh, I'm a main caregiver for my father, who's in a personal care home, and I was a main giver, caregiver as well for my mother uh, prior to her death a couple of years ago. Both my parents had various kinds of faith. They lived good and long lives, but at the very end they had uh, dementia, physical ailments, and other kinds of things. And in our family, I think like most families, we've had various other issues, uh, a close family member with anorexia, a couple of people with depression, and uh, other kinds of mental health issues. So um, it's something I think that probably most families deal with one way or another, and, and ours hasn't been an exception to that. Right. Now, please tell us more about your research interests. Ben? Well, my yeah, my research interests have been uh, very close to my policy interests as well, which is why I've been able to go back and forth from government to uh, academia. Um, I have a very strong belief in uh, equity in education. Uh, I think you could see the history of education as a history of great success in allowing people to achieve things, but you could also see the history of public education as a consistently underestimating what people are capable of. So I think slowly, slowly we've been learning over the years that virtually everybody can accomplish more than we thought or they thought, given the right kinds of motivation and support. So one of my strong interests has been in a deeper understanding of equity issues and poverty issues in education, diversity issues, and how we can help more young people be more successful. I'm very interested in how we do this at a system level, not just one school at a time, but across entire large systems. And I think in the last, especially 10 years or so, we've learned an increasing amount about how to do that. Uh, another right. uh, important interest of mine is how we link research to policy and practice. Uh, it seems to me that in education, as in many other fields, there is a lot we know about what we should do, and we don't always do it. It isn't that we don't need more research. Of course, we do in many areas, but there are lots of areas in which we have knowledge about effective practice and policy that we simply don't put into place. So I've done quite a bit of work over my whole career in different ways on looking at ways in which we can increase that connection between uh, research knowledge, policy, and practice in education. Right. Now, I want to ask you specifically to talk about the work you did with and in schools. Now, during the, part, the various parts of your career that you've been talking about, what actually did you do with and in the schools? Ben? Um, well, um, as I mentioned, I, I started out a long time ago as first a student leader and then as a member of a school board. Uh, I found that uh, in, in any of those roles, one is uh, restricted in what can, one can accomplish. And to get anything done in a big organization, you really have to be part of a team. Um, when I went back to work for the government of Manitoba in 1999, there was a new government, a uh, uh, new premier, and uh, I became the deputy minister or uh, uh, the head of the um, 
ministry, the provincial ministry or department of education, that government had a quite an ambitious education, especially in post-secondary education. So one of the goals, for example, was to um, dramatically increase enrollment in our community colleges. Uh, but the government had other goals around uh, improving participation by Aboriginal people who are a very significant component of the population in Manitoba. And uh, I was in the fortunate position of being able to lead that work within the bureaucracy, within the Department of Education, working closely with the politicians, but also working closely with leaders at the local level in our schools and school districts. Manitoba is a fairly small place. It's just over a million people. Everybody knows everybody, uh, but it, it was still a task to move uh, that system. And then uh, in 2004, I was hired by the Ontario government to fill the same role, essentially, as deputy minister or head of the Ministry of Education, civil service head of the ministry, uh, in a much bigger province with 13 million people and a school system that had 2 million students. And again, a new government that had some very ambitious objectives for how we could strengthen and improve public education. The government in Ontario had committed to uh, dramatic improvements in student performance. It had committed to cutting in half the number of uh, kids who were not graduating from high school. Um, so there were, there were very ambitious goals. And over four or five years there, uh, we were able to make some pretty dramatic changes that have been recognized internationally uh, by people like the OECD, by McKinsey, and by some other uh, external observers who've looked at the Ontario changes. So just as one example, um, in Ontario high schools, in 2003, we were graduating 68% of our students. Uh, and uh, seven years later, we're at 80, we were at 83 or 84%. It's a pretty dramatic improvement, 15 percentage points, more than 20,000 more kids a year graduating from high school compared to the baseline, you know, more than 100,000 additional high school graduates. So um, there were some pretty big improvements, and I think uh, one of my colleagues liked to call it reform without rankings or rancor. So one of the things we, I, I'm proud of about Ontario is that we work very closely with local districts, unlike many places where education reform has been on the backs of teachers or on the backs of local districts. Uh, in Ontario, there was a pretty strong collaborative relationship. Uh, we brought our partners with us, teacher unions, uh, students, parents, and other groups. And I think there was a widespread consensus in the pro province that, uh, that some very, very important improvements had been made and had been made in a way that made them less vulnerable to disappearing with the changing government because they were so deeply built into the way people work together. Now, right. a little bit of that shine has gone off in the last couple of years in Ontario. Uh, there have been some labor issues and some money problems, but there's still a lot of positive momentum left in the system from what was built in those, in those years, seven or eight, nine years ago. So there are some things that I've been involved in that I, that I feel pretty good about recognizing that thousands and thousands of people worked on those and played an important part in making those things happen. Just a very quick question. Um, certainly the, the bigger centers, the, the bigger urban places in provinces like Ontario and elsewhere have an increasingly diverse population, people from all over the world, uh, languages in large numbers. Did you have any particular policy influence on those the developments that improved education for uh, for those sure. diverse communities? Uh, for sure, we, we 
the the government was was very committed to those uh, diversity issues. Um, Toronto, half the people in Toronto were born outside of Canada, so it's one of, if not the most diverse cities in the world. Uh, and Ontario as a whole, more than a quarter of the population was born outside of Canada. So the whole province, but especially the urban areas, are very diverse. There were a couple of things we worked on. One was on building stronger relationships between the schools and the families and communities, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about more uh, as we go along today. Um, but another was uh, particularly to improve the teaching of students who came to school without knowing English or French as one of our two official languages. Uh, we found that there was a lot of um, variability in practice. People didn't necessarily have good guidelines. And so over a period of year or two, one of our efforts was to provide many more supports and resources to districts and more guidance, frankly, on how to work effectively with students who came to school without knowing English or French. And we saw some real improvements. Our, our uh, testing data showed very, very significant improvements for our English as a second language population. More recently, there's been a very significant on uh, mental health issues in Ontario schools, uh, and uh, which I'm sure we'll also talk about, and uh, trying to work in those areas. But this is a province recognition of diversity issues for sure. Right. Now, at this particular point, we're going to take a break. This is where I always say uh, we have to pay the rent, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Asley. My guest is Dr. Ben Levin. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join Gary Ray with his co-host Linda Crater as they show what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Ben Levin. Our topic is schools and families with children with mental health problems. Now, Ben, let's talk about the challenges created in the school environment by children's mental health problems. So, first question, Ben, what do you think are the most challenging of the challenges that children's mental health problems create for schools? Well, I would say, first of all, that there's a growing awareness and consciousness in schools uh, across Canada, at least, and in other parts of the world where I've been, that um, mental health issues are important issues for them. But the problems are several. The first is that Schools don't always know what to do about these issues. They don't understand them. Most educators don't have much training or background. You know, they they know something about teaching reading or uh, those kinds of issues. But when it comes to mental health issues, many teachers and school leaders feel that they just don't have a good sense of what the issues are or what to do about them. So that's the first thing. And then there's a natural tendency to blame the kids or the parents or the families for the problems that are being raised that that teachers are struggling with. Another aspect of that issue is how to fit exceptions into a bureaucratic system. Schooling everywhere is a big system, uh, and it's inevitably got bureaucratic trappings to it. And the challenge for schools is is that every child is different, and yet how much can we recognize and respond to that difference in a system in which we've got large numbers of children and a limited number of adults. So in general, there's often an unwillingness to adjust the institution to meet the needs of the individual, and instead we try to adjust the individuals to meet the uh, typical protocols of the institution. So we see in the area of mental health, for example, more and more desire to have kids diagnosed with some kind of thing that we can call an illness, or the increasing use of medication, for example, the increasing use of segregated classrooms, which take kids out of mainstream classes. These are, uh, to me, worrying. I would say that um, since the development of special education in public education, which is getting close to 50 years ago now, there are some things we can be very proud of. For example, uh, children with physical disabilities, blind children, deaf children, they get a much better education than they did. But the other side of that is there are an increasing number of kids that we are giving labels like uh, attention deficit disorder or hyperactivity or behavioral challenge, and we don't really have, in my view, a good idea of what those things mean or how to manage them effectively in the best interests of children. So those are real struggles for schools. And one more thing that I might mention under this heading is that schools understand that it's really important for them to build strong partnerships with other community actors like families and like, say, mental health agencies. But to say we should do that and to be able to do it are two different things. It turns out that it's very, very difficult 
to build lasting connections with other kinds of agencies, and we may talk more about that a little later. And it also is quite challenging for schools to build the strong connections with families sometimes that they know they really need to have to help children. So I would say those are among the challenges that the schools face. Right. Now that takes me straight into the next question, which is what you see as the most challenging of the challenges that children's mental health problems create for their families. And of course, I'm always talking about things in the school environment. That is, I'm thinking of a child with some kind of problem in school. And how does the problem, as it were, come back to families? Yes, yes. I I think those are uh, almost the inverse of, of what I just talked about. So, for example, Parents understand that their child has some needs that are unusual, and they're struggling to understand what those needs are and how to help their children most effectively. Um, And parents get caught in very difficult situations because parents are and need to be advocates for their children, and yet they also often understand that the institution has concerns too and that their kids do present real challenges. So it puts parents often in a very difficult position of knowing to what extent they should just be going to bat and advocating for their children, to what extent they have to try and work with and mollify the school system. In many cases, we just don't have a good base of evidence as to, to, to say to parents, here is how you can best help your child. And, of course, it's complicated because I'm sure that in many cases, families feel responsible for the problems. Uh, whereas nobody feels directly responsible if their kid has a, a kind of a physical illness. With mental health, there's often a feeling of we must have done something wrong. It must be our fault. Uh, and that, I think, complicates things emotionally as to how families work with the children in the schools. And then, of course, families end up having to navigate not just through the school system, but through the medical system, the mental health system, and other kinds of social services. And that can be extremely challenging, even where parents are uh, well-educated, articulate, and knowledgeable. But for the many parents for whom all of this is very new and who have plenty of other challenges in their life, to me it presents a, a gigantic challenge for parents as to how do I help my child in this very complex system that I don't understand very well and with a set of issues that we don't understand very well either. So I, I, I do, I really feel I, I have um, relatives, for example, who have, uh, have a son with uh, pretty severe autism. You know, I, 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 I really feel for parents who are in that situation. It's just a huge challenge as to what to do that's best for your child. Right. Now, let's ask about, it's the same question, you know, school environment, the most challenge, challenging of the challenges that are created for children by mental health problems. But what do you think are the most challenging of the challenges that are created for the children themselves? Ben? Well, in one sense, I I feel I'm probably not very well qualified to speak about this. But, you know, I would say the central thing is it's critical, critical that children uh, continue to have some sense of belief in themselves to believe that they are worthy people, that they can accomplish things, and that the adults around them also believe that they are worthy people who can accomplish things. And it takes me back to a point I made earlier, which is how often we underestimate what people are capable of. So if we take children, for example, with Down syndrome, 30, 40 years ago, uh, we basically thought kids with Down syndrome were uneducable. 
And it turns out that many of them are quite highly educable. Um, and I think we've learned the same about many other areas of disability. So I worry a lot that we focus on kids' problems and not on their strengths, and that kids absorb the message from the adults around them that you're just not very good and you shouldn't expect very much from yourself. You know, I, I love to tell the story about um, there's a Canadian kid. Well, he's not a kid now. He's a grown man in his 50s. Um, his name is Arnie Bolt, B-O-L-D-T. And uh, Arnie Bolt lost a leg when he was three years old. Now, he became a high jumper. You can find video, uh, videos of Arnie Bolt high jumping on YouTube. His best high jump was over two meters, over six and a half feet on one leg. And, you know, I like to tell that story. Uh, Arnie Bolt got the Order of Canada last year, which was a well-deserved tribute because he's been a huge ambassador for children with, and adults with disabilities and what they can accomplish. I like to tell that story because I wonder who it was that looked at Arnie Bolt and instead of seeing the missing leg, uh, saw the potential high jumper. And how it was that Arnie Bolt came to believe that he could be a world champion high jumper as a kid with one leg. And, you know, as we're recording this, we've just finished the Paralympic Games in, uh, in Sochi, Russia. The Canadian Paralympic Association has run some terrific television ads about the Paralympic athletes, many of whom I think are astounding. And the, the tagline is, focus on what's there, not what's missing. And I would say exactly the same thing applies to children with mental health issues that in our big systems we tend to focus so much on what people can't do, and it's very grinding for children. Uh, it's very hard for children in the face of that to believe that they are worthy and can accomplish. So I think that's the most important thing for children, the feeling that they are cared for, that they are worthy, and that they can accomplish. And I recognize the difficulties in doing that, but, but that's the critical thing I think that kids need to feel. Right. Now, I'm going to put back to you what you've just said, but in slightly different language. There's a sense now, it comes out of Paralympics, it comes out of other things, that we should focus on the abilities of the children and not, and this is not a good word, the disabilities. Uh, and I think that reflects very quite well what you've just been saying. Yes. Now, I'm going to put a, a kind of question to you, which we could probably talk about for the rest of the day, but it's this. Aren't schools, in effect, really concerned about, involved in, making sure that children make the best of their abilities? Isn't that right? And if it is right, then is it then not logical to apply that principle to children with mental health problems? It, ben, it, what do you think? It is certainly what schools are about, at least in theory. Uh, and it's what most educators feel that they should be about. The problem is that it's very hard to carry that out on a day-to-day -day basis in a large institution or in any kind of institution, really, not just a large one. Um, so you're a teacher dealing with 20 or 25 kids, and it just is very challenging to manage that in a way that takes account of different kids' uh, needs and abilities. And it's human nature, I think, to, to, that when we get frustrated with our own ability to achieve our goal, to lay the blame elsewhere and to say, well, if only somebody else did something else, things would be better. And that's where we run into trouble, that, that we get into a kind of a blaming the victim 
uh, syndrome, naturally and inevitably, I don't blame anyone for this. I think that's just the nature of, uh, of how human institutions work. So people need constant reminding about this. But I would say that schools do that more effectively than they used to in past when we used to write off large numbers of kids from the beginning without a qualm. That doesn't happen the same way anymore. So that's progress, isn't it? Absolutely. There's no question that we are educating more diverse learners more effectively than ever before. But there is still a long way to go. Right. Now, on that point, we'll take the break once more. Um, this is Dr. Gordon Adley, and my guest is Dr. Ben Levin. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We'll be back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you a homeowner or hope to be one? Looking for the best deal or a stress-free sale? Tune in to House Talk and keep from making a costly mistake. Host Duncan Smythe will guide you through the painstaking and maybe profitable real estate process, giving you tips on everything from listing and staging to negotiating and home inspections. Overwhelming? It doesn't have to be. Let House Talk help you. Tune in Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat Jr., President and CEO of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Ben Levin. Our topic is schools and families with children with mental health problems. Well, now let's talk about responses in the school environment to the challenges that are created by the mental health problems of children. So first question, what do you see as the most effective responses to the challenges you mentioned that children's mental health problems create for schools? Ben? Well, um, I mentioned four things. Um, The first is uh, training for teachers and school leaders in learning more about mental health issues. Uh, I, have a, I had a colleague at OISE who did a lot of work with uh, kids with uh, attention deficit disorder, and she had a terrific example. She said teachers would get frustrated with these children. They couldn't follow instructions and directions, um, and they tend to get angry. And what she would say to teachers is, think of it this way. This child can remember about five to seven words. So if your instruction is longer than seven words, by the time you've finished, 
the first half of it has gone out of their head. She said that would change teachers' whole way of thinking about this because they'd stop thinking of it as some kind of uh, bad behavior on the part of the child and start saying, okay, now we have an issue of how I organize instruction. So there is a way in which I can break up my instructions into shorter chunks so kids can remember them, right? So it gets us off of whose fault is it and into a what do we do about it? What do we know about how to do this better? So I do think a first issue is around training um, for people in schools to increase their understanding of different kinds of mental health issues and to look at alternative ways of dealing with them beyond drugging kids and labeling kids uh, where the labels don't actually tell us what to do to help them be more successful. Uh, so that means we need to focus on instructional practices, on classroom management practices, on how actually to work with kids to engage them in learning, kids with different kinds of issues to engage them in learning so that they can be more successful. That's the first and biggest one. Uh, right. A second one is to work more effectively with families. What often happens is that uh, families are advocating for their children. Schools feel they're being criticized, and, you know, the, the uh, discussion escalates and gets angrier and angrier on both sides. Nobody wants to admit that they've made a mistake. So I think we need to help people in schools learn the skills of conflict resolution, and these are very teachable. There are lots of programs that teach this, and uh, help people in schools understand how to work with parents in ways that make progress as opposed to just putting up barriers. We see this very often in schools that there, there is just a wall has grown up between a family and the school. Neither is really listening to the other anymore. Both think they know what is best for the child, and uh, it is not a good situation. We need schools and families to be working in partnership to help children. That's the only way it's going to work. So there are skills we can teach people in schools about a better understanding of how to work effectively with parents, um, even when the parents seem angry and hostile, which parents sometimes are. Um, and then the last one I mention is working more effectively with other agencies. As I mentioned earlier, this is a challenge for schools. Uh, often it's nobody's job. People have to add it on in their extra time. There are all kinds of bureaucratic obstacles. For example, under current privacy legislation, it's often very hard for people in different agencies to share information about a child effectively. So there are lots of things we can do here. And, you know, to take one example that I know about, kids who are in care, who are what we call uh, in Ontario crown wards, that is, they're not being looked after by their parents, but they're being looked after by child care agencies, they have very, very poor outcomes. And uh, there are now some initiatives in place to have schools work much more closely with the children's aid societies to advocate and work for and help those young people be more successful. So I think if we can develop more protocols uh, and more ways in which schools can work with children's mental health agencies, uh, health services, and other kinds of community agencies, that will also be helpful so that each school doesn't have to figure this out on its own every time it happens. So those are some of the things that I think we could help schools do. And I don't think any of them is uh, out of reach in terms of difficulty or all that expensive, but they do take some sustained effort and attention over time. Now, I'd just like to ask you what I call a supplementary on this one. Some of these conditions that we've either mentioned or fall under the broad heading of mental health problems are actually quite difficult sometimes to 
diagnose, don't like that word, but to understand in the sense of what they are. So I'm wondering, Ben, do you see an an opportunity, a role for schools and people with healthcare training, like nurses, for example, like like nurse, nurse practitioners, for example, to come into schools to be able to advise, obviously, the children and to some extent also the teachers and the families. What about that as a solution? What do you oh, think for of that? Sure. Uh, for sure. That's a big part of working effectively with other agencies. And, uh, you know, overwhelmingly, teachers want their children to be successful. Uh, they want their kids to learn and to thrive. And they get frustrated when they don't see how to make that happen. So where we can give them advice on how to be more successful in helping children uh, I think there's by and large going to be a big response, a good response to it. But there are some obstacles to it, and one of them, as I mentioned, is the increasing legislation on uh, personal privacy, which can often make it very hard for a nurse, for example, to work with a school without all kinds of releases and permissions about what information she can share with whom. Uh, so that's where I think we need better protocols to help those agencies work uh, more effectively together. Right. Good point. Now, I want to ask you the question as it relates to the children themselves. What are the most effective responses in the school environment, and particularly to the challenges you've mentioned before, um, the challenges for the children themselves arising out of their own mental health problems or mental health problems of other children? Ben, what do you say? Uh, Well, I'd answer those with emotion words. It seems to me that what children need above all is a sense of belonging, a sense of possibility, a sense of hope, uh, a belief that someone believes in them and wants to help them. Uh, We know from the literature on resilience that children can uh, do quite well under really often very deleterious conditions if they have one or two key adults in their life who can support them and make them feel that they're worthwhile and belong. So to me, that is one of the critical things. And, uh, you know, kids are very astute, even very young kids, even kids who are six or seven years old. They already have a good sense of when someone in the school thinks they're a problem or when someone has decided to write them off and say, well, this kid really isn't capable of very much learning. So... Those are the things that we especially have to help kids with. And that involves, by the way, anti-bullying, so that kids do not feel excluded by other children. Uh, It involves giving everybody the sense that they belong. Uh, A lovely model of that is the L'Arche communities uh, that were created by Jean Vanier for children with mental disabilities and adults with mental disabilities. But that feeling that everybody has a place in our community and we are going to try and find a way for everybody to be and feel included, worthwhile and valued. To me, that's the most fundamental thing for children. And then the sense that, you know, whatever the difficulties are, there is hope for the future. Things can get better. Ben, let me just follow up on that and ask you for a name. What I mean by that is, An individual recognizes a child and becomes the supporter of that child. Uh, That may not be a very good word. So what is the word that you would like to give to the people in schools who take on this role for the child? Advocates. 
Yes. Okay. Actually, one of the things we did in Ontario uh, to improve our high school performance is we created a new set of positions in our high schools called student success teachers. And uh, there was one pretty much in every high school. I used to describe their job as to care about the kids that nobody else was caring about, to know who every kid was, to feel for every kid to feel a sense of belonging, for every kid to feel there's an adult who's on my side and wants me to be successful. Um, and we need to organize our schools so that there is no kid falling through the cracks on that. That can be done. We know how to do that. But we don't always organize to do it, especially in large schools where kids tend to get lost and sometimes they want to be lost. Um, so I think it's advocates that we need, somebody to help that kid navigate the system and be uh, as successful as possible and maintain a sense of hope and optimism about the future. Is this role of advocate something that requires training for? Uh, yes, I think it does, um, because depending where people come from who are doing it, um, they may need to learn something about how the school system works, how to work effectively with other professionals, some of the skills of conflict resolution I mentioned earlier. Um, I've seen it work very effectively in uh, Maori schools in New Zealand also, where there are advocates from the community who work with Maori young, young people uh, to help them navigate the school uh, and to, to help them be successful. But, yes, I think people, people need training to do that effectively. And would these people need to be teachers, or could they come from other disciplines outside the educational world? What do you think about that? I don't think they need to be teachers. They, they might be teachers, but I think they could even be community members. Um, you know, I think in many schools there are teacher aides, teaching assistants, who are sometimes parents drawn from that community. Uh, they are people who are often extremely good advocates because they really understand where kids are coming from. So I think a variety of people could do that kind of work. Right. Now, question from the perspective of a child. A child, um, adolescent, starting to recognize in themselves that they have a problem. Perhaps it's an addiction. Perhaps it's something else. Would you see the advocate as the person to whom that child should go for help and advice? Ben? You know, I, I think we should let children um, uh, pick their own helpers uh, to the extent they feel able to do so. Um, we know that for many kids, a trusted teacher is a powerful ally. We know that in many high schools, uh, kids will go to a classroom teacher before a school counselor because they already have a relationship with that person. So what I would be saying uh, to the school is, you need to make sure there is some adult who knows and is connected with every student. But I don't want to be in a world where we're saying to a child, you must go to this person or you must go to that person. I think we want to, see to say to children, if there's someone you feel you want to trust to be on your side, we'll honor that choice. Very interesting. That selection process by the child is, is a fascinating thing because it's basically asking the child to turn to someone whom the child trusts, believes in, and understands that, the yeah. person. But, but if, feels if, the same feelings towards the child. Absolutely. But if there is no such person, then I think it's incumbent on the institution, the adults, to make sure that that child is not abandoned. Right. 
very good. Now, once again, we've come to the point where we have to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Ben Levin. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Ben Levin. Our topic is schools and families with children with mental health problems. Ben, now let's talk about the things that you would like to see done in the school environment to help with the challenges we've been talking about. Now, it's always within the school environment that I'm asking these questions, and and we're always focusing on the challenges created by children's mental health problems. So what more would you like to see done to help with the challenges that children's mental health problems create for schools? Ben? let me start off by talking uh, uh, perhaps perversely about some things that I would not want to see done. Um, I think, as I mentioned earlier in regard to special education, we want to avoid the temptation to uh, assign people labels, um, give them uh, kind of medical problems that require pharmaceutical treatments, um, and put them in a so-called special programs. We have a long history of that in schooling, and it's not a proud history. Uh, a lot of it has not served young people well at all. So I think the central task here is to try to avoid being too hung up on uh, labels and diagnoses and instead focus on what are the actions we can take 
to help people, uh, young people, be successful in what the school is asking them to do. Uh, you know, I had a really great encounter in a, in a school in Ontario a few years ago that had had a dramatic improvement in their classroom results. And those teachers said to me, you know, three years ago we would have said our kids have too many problems to learn to read. Now we've realized that when they learn to read, they have a lot fewer problems. Yes. So I think we want to be careful not to create a set of excuses uh, around so-called medical issues that mean that kids can't achieve and to keep the focus in the school on what is it we need to do to help kids learn to be good learners. Um, and, but that, in turn, does absolutely, as I said earlier, come back to more support resources and training for teachers, more skills in dealing with various kinds of issues, uh, because those are, there are things we can teach them about how to do that more effectively. Gradually, as our knowledge around some of these issues is increasing, we need to help people in the schools know what the latest thinking is about how they do a good instructional job with kids with very diverse needs and situations. And also for teachers and schools, it's important to have a sense of optimism and to recognize it's, it's key to remember that we're very bad at predicting people's futures. People in schools think we're good at it. We can look at kids when they're 12 and know where they're going to be when they're 20. But the empirical evidence actually says we're very bad at it. So we really run the risk of lowering our expectations and our sights for what young people can do, and that's something we really need to avoid. We can help people with that uh, by providing training, support, and resources so that they can struggle through with the children and with the families how to do their work as effectively as possible. Now, what more would you like to see done to deal with the challenges that arise for families and again it's within the school envir environment help for more help for families what well, would you I, like I to think, see i think one thing that would help is that if families uh, and parents especially parents and caregivers understood more clearly um what it is they need to do to advocate for and support for their young people and if we had resources to help families and parents do that and to help them do that in ways that were as non-confrontational as possible although sometimes some confrontation is necessary. Um, but still, parents want the best for their kids. Schools often want the best for their kids, but somehow the result when they connect is uh, not a focus on the kid, but a focus on the egos of the adults. So I think parents need help. Sometimes they need translators. Parents who may have struggles of their own may need uh, advocates to work with them who can speak the language of the school. Um, you know, there can be all kinds of language issues, in fact. So uh, lots of different supports that we could help parents with from the community that would help them feel that they were being heard and that their children were being cared for as effectively as possible. Right. Now, the children themselves, what more would you like to see done to help them with the challenges? Ben? Well, one critical thing is we really need to be believers in uh, second and third chances for people. You know, we, we never want to be writing off any student. We never want to be saying that's all that kid is capable of because what we know very clearly from a lot of evidence is that just simply isn't true, and people will surprise and astound us with what they can do under the right conditions. So I think another thing that both children and parents and indeed schools could benefit from is, <laughs> pardon me, examples or instances of people who've been able to overcome uh, serious obstacles and be successful. 
people find that very heartening. You know, the Arnie Bolt story I told earlier is an example of that. But there are many, many, many such stories. So I think if we, if we did more to help children understand that setbacks are not permanent, that progress can be made from any starting point, that whatever you may have messed up in the past, you should have another opportunity to do better in the future. I think those kinds of attitudes of uh, compassion, belief, forgiveness, belonging, support are so critical to helping people succeed. And we have so much evidence that people can do better with the right support. That That's the thing I think we really need to help children hang on to. Today might be bad. Tomorrow can be better. That's a message of hope, isn't it, Ben? Absolutely. It's also a message of, and this is the thing that you've been stressing throughout, looking at the abilities, not the disabilities, and giving opportunities for the abilities that weren't recognized or fulfilled the first time around to be applied again until success follows. And those are messages which um, I've heard in many circumstances on this on this show which is what people want when they are themselves experiencing any kind of disability. They want to have the opportunity, and this is exactly what you've been saying, to show what they're capable of and to use things like technology as workarounds. I mean, very simple examples are if you're not, able, if you're not very mobile because of a disability, then being able to get to work can be a challenge. But once you get to work, you may be not just as good as, but better than some of the others who are at work. And also the way in which computers um, and the technology of computers enable um, young people, all people, with the kind of mental health challenges, the, the um, autism, for example, the ADHD, these kind of challenges to do things that in the past would have been undoable if you will accept that language, that is, makes the possibilities for them of realizing their abilities in the way that computers now can read the screens to people who have no vision. Now, computer keyboards can become places where children with various sorts of challenges can make their abilities felt and known and rec get them recognized and see the value in themselves and the value in the things they do. So Ben, I want to thank you very much for making those points so clearly. Um, I want to thank you for sharing with us your own experience, your own insights and your own advice. And I want to wish you all success in your retirement. But I also want to wish you all success in what I hope will be your continuing work because there's a lot more to be done and I sense that somebody like you is going to go ahead and do it notwithstanding retirement. So all success to you. Thank now, you very much. It's been, a, it's been a great pleasure for me to be part of uh, what I, I believe to be a very, very important effort. Uh, so it's been a pleasure thank for you. me. Thank you very much. And I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be dementia and Alzheimer's disease, taking nothing for granted. Please join us same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. 
Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.